Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Chileans overwhelmingly rejected the status quo in elections for an assembly to write a new constitution. But not everyone is thrilled. I think the big problem for Chile is that the new constitution will reduce the prospects for economic growth and thus it will make achieving a more successful safety net more difficult. The eyes of Latin America are once again on Chile. This past weekend, Chileans elected an assembly to draft a new constitution, and the delegates will be much more left-leaning and anti-establishment than many had expected. The right-wing parties of President Sebastián Piñera did especially poorly and fall short of the one-third of seats necessary to exercise veto power. This was a vote strongly against the status quo, and if you've been following Chile these last 18 months or so, that shouldn't have been a surprise. But it did spook many investors, and the Chilean stock market dropped 10% after the vote, its biggest fall since the start of the pandemic. And I can just say personally that my phone has been ringing since virtually the moment it became official with people all over the Americas trying to figure out what this means. And look, fair enough. I mean, it comes back to the same questions we've been asking since protests first erupted in Chile in October 2019 about what kind of country will come out of this process. Will a new constitution help Chile address the demands of those protesters for a more inclusive and fair society? Or will this process, whatever its good intentions, ultimately destroy the free market policies that help Chile reach middle income status and reduce poverty as well, and end up saddling the country with high-minded but ultimately unfundable obligations with us today to try to sort through these questions and kind of the latest hints that we've received is my friend Patricio Navia. Patricio is a professor at Diego Portales University in Chile and New York University as well. He's also a contributing columnist and member of the editorial board at America's Quarterly. He was also, by the way, the guest on the first episode ever of the AQ podcast. And he wrote a piece titled Chile's Big Gamble Just Got Riskier that focused on the quote-unquote downside risks of this constitutional process following the result that we saw on Sunday. Patricio, thanks for coming back to the AQ podcast. Thanks for having me. Patricio, basic question for you to start. You are so pessimistic about what's happening in Chile right now. Why? Well, I'm pessimistic about what will happen in Chile in the next couple of years. I'm I'm a bit more optimistic about the long-term prospects for Chile, but the constitutional process is not going to be the magic pill a lot of people expect it to be simply because it hasn't been a magic pill anywhere in Latin America. But in the long run, I think the market-friendly policies that Chile has implemented over the past 30 years will end up prevailing. But the Constitution will certainly not help consolidate those policies. To the contrary, the Constitution will likely create a much bigger state with more guaranteed social rights that will not be enforced and it will dissuade investors from coming to Chile and generating the conditions for faster and more sustainable economic growth. Now, you argued in your piece for AQ that if it turns out the way it appears to be heading with this you know, a long constitution similar to, I believe you mentioned Brazil's 
word constitution of 1988 which you know spells out all kinds of rights and privileges which in practice you know don't always exist you're basically your concern is that chile ends up with something similar to that charter or charters in places like bolivia even venezuela where all of these you know very laudable rights get spelled out in the constitution but what's required to pay them ends up choking off the private sector. Yes, I think it's going to be more like Brazil or Colombia than like Venezuela or Bolivia. So I'm looking at the successful cases of new constitutions in Latin America over the past 35 years. So forget about Bolivia, Venezuela or Ecuador. Just look at Colombia and Brazil, the allegedly two more successful cases. In both countries, the new constitutions, very long constitutions, generated conditions for a judicialization after the new constitutions were promulgated precisely because the long constitutions had a lot of contradictions and ambiguities. So the end result of both constitutional processes was that in the case of Colombia, the Constitutional Tribunal, and the case of Brazil, the Supreme Court of Brazil ended up adjudicating which of the many constitutional principles is more important. And the biggest problem of Brazil and Colombia is that social spending, be it effective or not effective, is very, very high, and both countries have significant fiscal deficit problems. And I think that's the route Chile will go down, and that's not very good news for the prospects of sustained growth in the future. But Patricia, let's, I mean, let's go back to October 2019 for a minute when you know, it's easy to forget because time has passed. And of course, we had this, you know, this pandemic in the middle, which has caused so much devastation. But these protests were, were massive and you had, you know, 1.5 million people in the streets on one day, uh, roughly equivalent. I mean, a little less than 10% of Chile's entire population on the streets. Uh, it was ongoing protests, most of them peaceful, some of them violent. And, you know, there was a very clear expression, not only of a demand for change, but a particular kind of change where, as you put it in an essay for AQ at the time, there were people who just felt like they had been shut out of the promised land of middle class status, that they were almost there, kind of at the gate looking in, but couldn't quite get there. And here we are now, 18 months later, and, you know, it seems like, again, that's what people seem to be voting for over the weekend was a rejection of the political status quo and a vote for a more robust state that will at least try to guarantee more fairness and sort of a certain safety net that doesn't exist now. I mean, was it really, if we take the long view on this, was the outcome that big a surprise? Well, people demanded more social rights in 2019. And I think the big problem for Chile is that the new constitution will reduce the prospects for economic growth and thus it will make achieving a more successful safety net more difficult. What specifically about whom was elected uh, to be in this constituent assembly worries you and in your mind points toward that outcome of a constitution that, that tries to do too much? So I'm not really concerned about who got elected. I think the individual incentives for the 155 members, whatever they are, 
even if they were all right-wingers, the incentives based on what they campaigned on is that they will put their own little pet projects into the constitution. So we are going to have a long list of guaranteed social rights that will carry a very high price tag. The real problem is that the new constitution is going to be a Christmas tree constitution with presents for everyone that the country will not be able to pay for. So the members of the Constitutional Assembly will sign the promissory note and then they will go home. And the next government is going to have to find the resources to pay for all those social rights that are going to be guaranteed in the Constitution. Let's talk about some of the specific results, though. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, President Piñera's party did very poorly. And that's not really a huge surprise. I mean, his approval rating is around 9%. He's suffered, you know, just one defeat after another, really going back to the beginning of the protests in 2019. Were you surprised by how poorly Pineda did? And is there anything beyond the obvious, you know, disgust that he has suffered that explains the bad result? Well, no and yes, right? So we expected for Piñera not to do well in the election, and that's why most right-wing candidates did not associate themselves with Piñera. In the campaign, in social networks, in the streets, nobody had pictures with Piñera. So right-wing candidates distanced themselves from Piñera because they expected that Piñera would actually hurt them in terms of the votes they would receive. But what I'm surprised about is the low vote support that right-wing candidates received. Only 23% of the members of the Constitutional Assembly are right-wing candidates. And it was the worst outcome for the Chilean right in 30 years. Right. It's the worst electoral performance since 1965. Now, to a large extent, though, and some of the early results are showing that, Turnout was low across the board, but it was particularly lower in areas where the right is relatively strong. So it seems that many right-wing voters didn't bother to turn out to vote. And to a large extent, that I think reflects the fact that the right doesn't know where to go in Chile today. Some people remain nostalgic of the Pinochet-era dictatorship, and they want to keep things as they always were, which is not very attractive electorally. And other people are trying to disguise themselves as social democrats, and that doesn't really go well with the right either. So we don't have a, very much like the U.S., we don't have a right that is committed to democracy and that offers a path forward for people who value market-friendly policies. But correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you're projecting that as a tactical mistake by the rightist politicians. But could it also be true that the ideas traditionally associated with that democratic right just aren't finding an audience in Chile right now, that what people really want is something more along the lines of that social democratic line that you were describing? Well, it might be that people want a bigger state. And I, and I think the fact that Chile's market-friendly policies sort of undermine the role of the public sector might have something to do with it. So in the U.S., most kids go to public schools. In Chile, most kids go to private schools subsidized by the state. So maybe people do want to have a bigger role for the state, but I'm not sure 
that people actually want a different model from the capitalist model that Chile has. So probably people want to tweak, improve, modify the system somewhat, but I'm certain that they don't want to be another left-wing Latin American country. They want to be a Northern European country. So they want a bigger safety net, a bigger social welfare state, but they also embrace capitalism. You mentioned Patricio voter turnout, and it was pretty low. I mean, I, it was low in these more traditionally right-wing areas that you mentioned, but it was kind of low across the board. It was only just above 40%. That's much lower than in October when Chileans voted to leave the previous constitution behind. What do you think caused this? I mean, it, it's not COVID because there was COVID last October as well. I, is there something else? Well, yes. And I think that's precisely the point I'm trying to make, right? People see the Pinochet constitution as the culprit for everything that is wrong with Chile. So they wanted to destroy that Pinochet era constitution because they think that the new constitution will be the way out of the problems that Chile has. So they didn't bother to go and vote to elect the members of the new constitution because they are looking at the upside gains not the downside risks of the constitution writing process. Most people believe that the new constitution will create a public pension system, and they're happy with it, and they don't really doubt that whomever makes it to the constitutional convention will vote to create a new public pension system. So they didn't bother to go vote because they think that they will get a new public pension system no matter what. Patricia, I want to pause for a second and look at what's happening across Latin America right now, because, you know, if you look at, especially at the Andes, with these upcoming elections in Peru, where Pedro Castillo has, you know, has a good chance of winning here in a couple of weeks, you look at what happened at the return of the MAS in Bolivia, you look at upcoming elections in Colombia and Brazil with the possibility that leftists could win there. Are we seeing another leftward shift in the region right now? I mean, what, what do you think this all means? I think people are voting against the incumbents. That's certainly the kind of things that we are seeing in Latin America. We'll see what happens in, in Mexico. They have midterm elections in a couple of weeks as well. And it seems that support for the ruling coalition will decline in Mexico as well. So this is consistent with the notion that people are punishing the incumbents because of the way they have handled the pandemic, because of the economic crisis. But it is also true that the pandemic has made it evident that the state in Latin America, state capacity is very limited. In many countries, the state doesn't really exist in the way we think of the state in more industrialized countries. There isn't really quality public education. The healthcare system is insufficient. So there are real problems in Latin America and the quality of government services is very limited and people are discontent with that and they punish their governments for not providing what they think the government should provide. At the same time, would you agree that a Latin America with Castillo as president in Peru, Gustavo Petro in Colombia, Lula in Brazil, and say a figure like Hadwe, the communist mayor in Chile, I mean, that would look quite different from today's Latin America, no? Absolutely. It would certainly be a significant development, and it would mean that the 
opportunity market-friendly policies have to produce results that improve the quality of life of the population fail, right? So the bad news is that we know that the left-wing alternative of a bigger state hasn't really met the expectations either. So it's not that there is an alternative model for sustainable economic growth offered by the left. The left is really campaigning on we need to overcome capitalism, but it's not altogether clear as to what alternative the left is offering other than to pray for commodities to go up in value so that they can go back to the commodity boom early in the 21st century. Yeah, and I, I would mention, just to follow up on my own question, that it's it's unfair to paint all of those leaders that I just mentioned with the same brush. Uh, a leader like Lula, for example, in Brazil was a capitalist. I mean, stock markets rose, I believe, more than 80% during his time in office, and, and his record contrasts sharply with what we'd expect from, uh, say, Castillo or Gustavo Petro in Colombia. But, you know, Patricio, I'm of the belief, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that actually the the more important election in Chile is going to be the presidential one. The Constitution, of course, is important, but what will really kind of set the course for the next four years is this presidential race coming up in November. And I have tried to make sense of this race. And we, we actually have a very handy candidate's guide on the America's Quarterly site that gives thumbnail sketches and kind of profile of each of the major candidates polling above around 5% of voter intentions. That said, I still find it bewildering, <laughs> this field of candidates. I mean, I, very sort of different figures. It's hard to get an impression of what's really happening. I mean, what can you tell us about how this race looks so far and, and what the risks associated with it might be? Well, I do beg to disagree. I think the constitution is going to be way more important than the presidential election. After all, the Constitutional Convention might decide that we're not going to have a presidential system, but a semi-presidential system or even a parliamentary system. So the president is going to be elected under the old constitution, but whomever wins the presidential election is going to have to wait for about six to eight months until the new constitution is finalized and people vote to approve the new constitution in an exit plebiscite. So the next government is going to have to sit and wait for about eight months next year before they can do anything, waiting for the Constitutional Convention to finish drafting the new constitution. I guess my view was that, you know, the next president is going to mark an ideological direction that will sort of see whether some of these rights and privileges that get enumerated in the Constitution actually get implemented and how and how fast. So, for example, you could end up with a quite rights-heavy, let's call it, Constitution. But if you then have a center-right leader like Lavin, for example, the implementation of that would look quite different. Well, I respectfully disagree. I think because those things will be in the new constitution, even if the president drags his or her feet in implementing those rights, people can take the issue to the judicial system and they can have the constitutional tribunal or the Supreme Court, whoever ends up adjudicating constitutional issues, dictating social policy. Fair enough. Well, talk to me about the presidential candidates. We just had the Constitutional Convention election. They will start deliberations in early July. 
So I think what we now have is a long list of people who want to be presidents and an electorate that is not really paying that much attention to the presidential race. I mean, this is almost like what we had in Peru in 2020. The front runners were people who were not necessarily those who ended up making it to the runoff. So I propose we do this. Tell me two candidates who you think will still be in the mix for those two runoff positions by the time we get to November. One would be Joaquin Lavin. I think he will be the right-wing coalition candidate. And another is the candidate of the Communist Party, Daniel Hadwe. Joaquin Lavin is a traditional right-wing candidate who was a supporter of the Pinochet dictatorship, who has had an evolution over the years, and who now declares himself to be a social democrat, and who wants a national unity government. We could say that he would be the more market-friendly candidate for the elections, but he is also a candidate of the past. He was first presidential candidate in 1999 a year before George W. Bush became president of the United States. So it's a long time ago for modern politics. Whereas Daniel Hadwe is the member of the Communist Party. He's been a somewhat successful, pragmatic mayor of one of Santiago's popular districts, Recoleta. But his views and his government program give a very, very important role to the state. He's been very clear in that he wants to overcome the neoliberal system in place in Chile. Based on what we saw this weekend, doesn't Hadwe seem like the obvious favorite between those two? If we have a turnout of 40%, then somebody like Hadwe might win the election. Normally, in presidential elections, we tend to have a significantly higher turnout, close to 55%. So there might be differences. But I do believe that if you have a runoff between Lavin and Hadwe, it's not altogether clear that Lavin would be the favorite. Patricio, as we kind of move towards a conclusion here, you know, Chile is a country that I've spent some time in over the years, going back 20 years or so. You know, going back to previous discussions you and I have had, it really is a success story over this 20, 30 year period in terms of economic growth, in terms of poverty reduction, in terms of improvement in social indicators like infant mortality. You're really hard-pressed to find a country that's done better over that 30-year sweep. I mean, maybe Peru if you take sort of a 15-year window there in the middle, but Chile really is the success story, which again, is is why what happened in late 2019 was so surprising to so many people. But that question has been picked over, and I think we all now understand what the perceived and real deficiencies of the Chilean model were. But as I look and kind of take the long view, I have this, maybe you could call it blind faith, <laughs> maybe you could call it a gut feeling, that the country is still going to come out on the other side of this okay because of the strength of its democracy, because of the strength of institutions, the qualities of some of its leadership. Am I wrong? I mean, I, is this a classic case of assuming that, you know, the record of the last 30 years will ensure continued future results? Or, or is there something that maybe we're not focusing on here that will provide that Chile continues to surprise on the upside and go through those gates and reach what you describe as the promised land of true kind of developed nation status? 
Well, I would totally agree with you, except that the Constitutional Assembly will redesign those institutions that you believe are so central to the future success of Chile. So if those institutions are kept in place, then Chile has good chances to make it. If they redesign the institutions in such a way that uh, Chile is no longer a market-friendly country, then the prospects for success are not quite that strong. Again, Latin American countries go through cycles. I remember my first class on Latin American politics in 1988 at the University of Illinois, I learned that Venezuela was the most stable democracy in Latin America, and it was in 1988, but that Venezuela had three huge problems. High levels of inequality, it depended too much on oil exports, and it had an increasingly inefficient and corrupt political and business elite. Now, I teach exactly the same thing today, and I say that Chile is the most stable democracy in Latin America, but that Chile has three problems. Now, Chile doesn't depend on copper as much as Venezuela depended on oil. The levels of inequality in Chile are much lower. Chile has a much bigger middle class, and levels of corruption are nowhere near what they were in Venezuela. So Chile is in a much better position than Venezuela was in 1988, but everything depends on whether the institutions that you talked about remain in place. And it's certainly not guaranteed that they will remain in place when the new constitution is drafted. Patricio, you're always thoughtful. I always learn from you. And, you know, we'll just have to keep our eyes open over the next couple months and I guess years uh, to see how this story develops. Thank you so much for joining us on the AQ podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.